what, what a privilege it is to be able to open up the Word of the Lord with you this morning. And uh, I'm so glad to be able to join uh, with where you are in God's Word in walking through this series in the book of Galatians. Uh, what a wonderfully challenging book, clarifying book uh, about the nature of the gospel. Sometimes a harsh book that Paul uses, some harsh language uh, to describe what's happening there. But uh, have no doubt as we come to this passage this morning that the Lord will use it to do all of those things in our lives, to clarify, encourage, uh, and correct. So the passage in question that we come to is in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to examine Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, and reading through Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. This is what God's Word says. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the, woman, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and, her, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the Spirit, so also now. But what does the Scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but all of the free woman." For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thomas Jefferson once said, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And I think we all sort of intuitively know what that means. It means that freedom is one of those things that can't be presumed upon. It can't be taken for granted. And in a political sense, anytime a nation starts to do that, they just sort of presume that they will be free, then inevitably that freedom is going to be challenged. In other words, that if a nation wants to be free, then the price for that freedom is always being on watch. It's always being on guard because there will always be a challenge to that freedom both from outside and from the inside. Now the Bible also has a lot to say about freedom, albeit a different kind of freedom than Thomas Jefferson envisioned. And the culminating statement of the passage today in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 has a lot of similarities to what Jefferson ripped off of it. Galatians 5.1, Paul says that Christ has liberated us. He has set us free. This is an already state in which we live, and yet 
He too says that that state of freedom in which you now live requires a sense of vigilance in order to remain free. He says, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Just as in the case with a political kind of freedom, so also the freedom that we currently live in because of the sacrifice, the resurrection of Jesus Christ also takes some vigilance. That without vigilance, that we too will submit ourselves again to the yoke of slavery. And the reason why that it requires vigilance is because our natural spiritual bent is toward bondage. It's toward slavery. But slavery to what and why slavery? Because intuitively, what you would assume is that once you've tasted the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians, that surely, surely you would never voluntarily yoke yourselves again with a yoke of slavery. But that's what you would think anyway. But later on in chapter 5, Paul says, Brothers, you were called to be free. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. And that's where we get sort of the appeal to slavery, because apparently there is a way that you can choose spiritual slavery and to do it in such a way that it really appeals to the flesh inside of you. And that can really happen in one of two ways. There's the obvious way that you can indulge your own flesh. And that is by using the sense of freedom that you have from Christ as a license for immorality. So that is to say that you could internally think to yourself, well, grace abounds. And because grace abounds, it means that that well of grace is never really going to run dry. And so I can essentially behave in my everyday life exactly how my flesh wants me to behave. I can be greedy or lustful or vengeful or whatever it is because all those things make me feel good in the moment. And at the end of the day, I can always just ask for more grace and God's going to give me that grace. That is how you can indulge your flesh by using your freedom. But there's a second way that you can indulge your flesh that is less obvious, and this is the way that it's happening in the Galatian region and the churches that are represented there. It's not that those people are using their flesh as an opportunity, that using their freedom as an opportunity to indulge their flesh in the sense that they have a license for immorality. It's that they were choosing to be yoked by the slavery of the law in such a way that bolsters their pride. Now, remember the chief obstacle that Paul is trying to guard against in the book of Galatians. There was this group of churches in Asia Minor, and they had received the gospel with joy, and many of them had become Christians, and the gospel message that they believed was very simple, that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But then, as was Paul's pattern, after he planted many of these churches, he left, and after he left, those churches were infiltrated by a group of teachers called the Judaizers. 
Now, that's a really appropriate name for these teachers because they were all ethnically Jewish people who also believed in Jesus, but they were adding some things to the gospel. The core message of the Judaizers in the Galatian region was, you all want to be Christians, that's great. We want to be Christians too, but Paul has left out a very important step on the road to Christ. That if you want to be a Christian, the first step for you as a Gentile is to become Jewish, and then you can become a Christian. It's only through the Judaism that the pathway to Christianity truly runs. And so if you're a Gentile, what that means is that if you want to be a Christian, it's not enough to only believe in Christ. You also have to abstain from certain foods. And you also have to keep certain religious holidays and practices. There's some bodily operations that need to be performed in order for you to actually become a Christian. You have to do all of these things. And when you combine all of these things that you're doing with the things that you are believing to be true about Christ, only then, only then do you really become acceptable to God. And many of the Galatians had believed this. The whole message of the book, the letter to the Galatian region, was to provide a correction and to bring people back to that core, simple message of the gospel, that it is not that you are made right with God based on what you do. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So in the case of the Galatians, they weren't abusing the grace of God and using it as a license for immorality, they had drifted into the slavery of legalism. This too is an indulgence of the sinful flesh because when you drift into the slavery of legalism, it appeals very, very much to your pride. Because suddenly, not all of us are on level footing before God. Suddenly, every one of us has, in a sense, a spiritual resume that we are building. And we find ourselves relying on all of the different accolades that we build into that spiritual resume in order to make us right with God. It appeals to our sinful nature, to our pride, because it becomes a stepping stone by which, through our own effort, we can perceive ourselves to be closer and more right with the Lord. And so now we've come to the point in Galatians in which Paul is going to repel that attack by doing three things which he does in this passage. The first thing that he does is he reminds the Galatians of another Bible story. And the second thing he does is he interprets that story to help them see the truth of what's happening inside of their own context. And the third thing that he does is provide some application for them. So in a real sense, what we have in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through Galatians 5, 1, is a little mini-sermon inside of the book of Galatians, where Paul's going to tell a Bible story, and then he's going to interpret that Bible story, and then he's going to apply that Bible story, which is exactly what we do every single week when we gather together as Christians. And here's how Paul does it in Galatians chapter 4. First, the story. 
The story that Paul reminds the Galatian believers of is one of the earliest stories in the Bible. It starts way back in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we find the very foundation of the Jewish nation. There were no Jewish people before Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, there's only a man named Abram. And God chose this man out of all the other men that he could have chosen. He chose this man to be the basis for the people that he was going to build for himself. And if you remember the story in Genesis 12, the Lord comes to Abram and he makes some huge promises to him. And one of the promises that he makes to Abram is that I will make you into a great nation. This nation is going to be the Jewish people. The Lord promises that. Now the problem at this point in his life is that in Genesis 12, Abram was about 75 years old. And at 75 years old, he and his wife, Sarai, did not have any children. And yet, Abram believed God. He trusted him. He took him at his word. So much so that when God said, what I'm requiring you to do is to leave your homeland and go to a land that I'm not even going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to tell you when you get there, that he believed God so much that he did that. So childless, he and his wife and all of their stuff, they leave and they go. And then we fast forward to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, 10 years have passed between Abram receiving this call and these promises from the Lord. So he's 10 years older, but no sons richer. Still childless. And it's come to the point where Abram feels like he can ask the question of the Lord, what's going on here? And that's what he does. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 15, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who right now, like if I were to die right now, the one who's going to inherit all of my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household is going to be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him again in Genesis chapter 15 and says, no, that man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then God took Abram outside and said, I want you to look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. And he says, that's how many your descendants are going to be. So in Genesis 15, God reaffirms what he said in Genesis chapter 12. Then we fast forward to another chapter, Genesis chapter 16, and 10 more years have passed. So here we go. Abram is now in his 80s, and they still have no children. And finally, as Abram and Sarai look at each other, they decide it's time for us to take matters into our own hands. And so they do. The word of the Lord says, the Lord has kept me from having children. This is Sarai speaking. Go, she says to Abram, I want you to go and sleep with my slave and perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for all these years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Now, this was not an awesome idea. 
As you can imagine, you can imagine it even if you haven't read the rest of the story, that there is no scenario in which this turns out to be a good move. But before we judge Abram and his wife too harshly here, maybe it's worth considering how often in lesser ways that we do the exact same thing. I mean, after all, the promise is over 10 years old. Abram's been faithfully waiting. He left everything he had. He's been waiting for 10 years. Been waiting faithfully and no children. Surely it was time for somebody to do something. Clearly the Lord wasn't moving. And many times we have that same thought ourselves. That we look out at some perceived future that we think that the Lord has for us and we think to ourselves, man, we've got to get this thing going. And as a result, through our own effort, We try and manufacture some kind of positive movement and positive result. This is one of the great temptations of all mankind, to take matters into your own hands, and essentially, in the case of Abram and with us, to want the blessings of the Lord, but to only want them on our own terms how we see that they are supposed to happen. So common is this temptation that it's one of the ways that Satan himself tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You remember the story from Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3 is a beautiful scene. Jesus, ready to start his earthly ministry, is baptized. And then there's this voice from above that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased And then immediately after, in Matthew chapter 4, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And he's there for 40 days, and he's fasting for 40 days, and he's being tempted by the devil. And the third temptation, the devil comes to Jesus and takes him to a very high mountain, and he shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he says, I will give you all of this. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, here we have an example of the future that God promised because we know that it was actually God's will for Jesus to be the king over all the kingdoms of the earth. He is the king of kings and even now is reigning victorious. But God's ordained means of Jesus seeing that future come to pass took a great deal of faith on the part of Jesus because it meant him walking through the valley of suffering and crucifixion and only then would he be crowned. But here is Satan offering Jesus just a little shorter pathway. I mean, after all, this is what the Lord wants for you. We don't see a lot of things moving here, do we? It's been 30 years for crying out loud. Come on, one move and you can live in the middle of God's blessing for you. One action, Abram, and you can see the fulfillment of what God has promised to you. And yet in both cases, the problem is that you cannot divorce the means from the ends. Jesus refused this temptation. Abram did not. And because he didn't, because he did take matters into his own hands, Hagar 
had a son whose name was Ishmael. And then, if we fast forward a little bit further, at the age of 100 years, some 25 years after initially receiving the call and the promise of God, Abram, now called Abraham, and Sarah had their own child, the child of the promise. And his name was Isaac. This is the story that Paul draws out for the Galatians. He says, remember this Bible story. And then he starts to interpret the Bible story. Now, in order to understand the way that Paul interprets it, you have to, again, remember who Paul's opponents are here. They are the Judaizers, the ones who are resting on their own ability, their own righteousness, their own actions to make them right with God. And they're preaching this message to the churches in Galatia. That's what Paul is specifically trying to counter. Now, it's not unlike the message that Jesus heard in his day from the Pharisees. In the midst of all the ways that the Pharisees criticized Jesus and Jesus came back and criticized the Pharisees, there's one particular phrase that stands out from the Gospels over and over again that's relevant to Galatians chapter 4. And the phrase that stands out is this. The Pharisees would often say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. They held that phrase like a shield as if it would repel the teaching, the criticism, and the admonishment of Jesus Christ. They were so fixated on their ethnic bloodline as if that is what made them right with God. Abraham is our father. Now, here's why that matters in Galatians chapter 4. It's because Paul's point in Galatians chapter 4 is not so much the answer to the question, who's your daddy? Paul's question in Galatians 4 is, who is your mother? Because in Galatians chapter 4, Paul presents all of humanity, every single human being, as either being a child of Hagar or a child of Sarah. A child of the slave woman or a child of the promise. Children of Hagar, well, these are people who are choosing to live under the covenant of the law. It's the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai. It's the covenant of requirement, the covenant that said, here is what the Lord requires of you, and ironically, the covenant that can never actually be kept based on our own human effort. The children of Sarah, well, these are children of a different covenant. It's not the covenant that came from Mount Sinai. It's the covenant that came from the Jerusalem that is not of this earth, but a Jerusalem of somewhere else. And under this new covenant, it's not a covenant that's written in stone that came down from the mountain, but it's a covenant that is written on the very hearts of those who believe in it. To put it another way, we are all either children of the flesh and therefore slaves, or we are children of the promise and therefore free. We are either trusting in our own ability to manufacture righteousness before the Lord, or we are choosing to trust in something else. We're free as Christians. We're children of the free woman. And if you are free, you are free because God, through the gospel, has made you into 
a whole person. Now, see if I can illustrate a little bit about what that means. Now, if you have children, here, especially young children, you're going to resonate with, with this because if you're a parent with young children, then you know that from time to time that the dinner table at night becomes a little bit of a battlefield, right? Now, if you're having mac and cheese, or if you're having burgers or pizza, then it's peacetime. But every so often, you put something out on that table that turns it into war time. So let's say, for the sake of example, that one night you decide in your wisdom as a parent that tonight is going to be canned spinach night. So you open up that can of spinach and pull out those soggy spinach pieces and you ladle them down there in front of the kids and you say to the children, children, eat your spinach. Now, the way that this is going to go is that there will then be a test of wills that might last hours in which you're staring across and they're staring across at you. But eventually, hopefully, what happens is that your children will wear out before you do and they will go through the mechanical motion of cutting the spinach and putting it in their mouths and grinding it up and then swallowing it with a milk chaser. That's, that's hopefully what will happen. But I wonder if on the next spinach night you decided to change things up. What if on the next spinach night you came to the table and you said, children, tonight I have a new command for you. The new command is not to eat your spinach. The new command is love your spinach. Well, that is a different deal. And if your kids were self-aware enough to say it, then they might come back with something like this. Daddy, you have given us an impossible commandment. If you told us to eat the spinach, we can force ourselves into that obedience. We can go through the mechanical motion of chewing and swallowing. We can do that. But you're asking us for something much different than that, something that we cannot do. So if you really want us to love the spinach, it's not enough for you to actually give us the command. You have to give us new taste buds to go along with the command that you have given us. Now, I wonder if you remember this moment in Matthew chapter 22 when this person comes to Jesus and trying to trap him says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, let me nutshell it for you. That the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And you didn't ask for this, but I'm going to give you the second one because it's like the first one, to love your neighbor as yourself. In much of the same way, if the man was self-aware enough and was asking a genuine question, he might have come back and said, you, Jesus, have crushed me with this command because you are asking me for something that is absolutely impossible. You could have asked me for virtually anything else in the world and I could mechanically control my actions. I could do the thing that you want me to do. But while I can control the mechanics, I can't control whether I love doing it. Jesus, if you want to give me this command, it's not enough for you to issue the command. You better give me a new heart to go along with it. 
And friends, this is the essence of the new covenant. It is not a command written in stone. It's the commandments of God written on your hearts because you've been born again by the the grace of Jesus Christ. And that means that as free children, our obedience is not just mechanical action, but it springs from the reservoir of our souls. And you only get that when you are born of supernatural means. Not like Ishmael, not born of the means of human ingenuity, but like Isaac, born only because God miraculously intervened and turned a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Just as the child of Hagar was the result of human effort, of human means, of taking matters into our own hands, and an effort to grasp the promises of God and yet have them on our own terms, so also are the children of promise born of supernatural means, irrespective of our own effort. And just as the child of Hagar might, at some level, keep the external components of the law, they will always be lacking because the motivation behind those actions will not spring from a changed heart. They will be enslaved because they will be enslaved to a standard that can never be reached. And so all of their attempts at righteousness are a constant toil because it will never be enough because it doesn't come from a changed heart. But the children of the promise, our hearts have been changed. And because they are We are free. We're free in the sense not only that we're free to obey God, but that we're free to want to obey God. And that freedom means that we are whole people. Those who choose to live according to the law will always, in a sense, be divided, divided between what their actions are and what their deep desires are. But those who are free are whole and complete. Now, you might say, hang on a second. That would be nice if it were true. But man... I don't feel whole. I feel divided. Because there's a whole lot of times in my life when I know the thing that I'm supposed to do, but I don't feel like doing it. I feel like doing something else. I know I should be generous, but I don't want to be. I know that I should serve, but I don't want to serve. I know that I should forgive that person, but I don't want to forgive. So that would be nice if it were true, but my experience doesn't match up with what you are saying. The best that I can do, you might say, is living in a state of wanting to want. I want to want to serve. I want to want to give. I want to want to forgive. I want to want to love, but I feel so torn and divided in my soul because I don't genuinely feel the things that I should. As we close this morning, could I just encourage you, encourage you with this? 
that every one of us as children of the promise are already free and are on a journey to being whole. You're more whole now than you were when you were born again. You'll be more whole two weeks from now than you are today. I remember the words of John Newton, the slave trader who later came to Christ and wrote the words to Amazing Grace when he said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But I am not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that true of all of us? You want to want, but you're not what you were. You're not what you were. When we think about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, typically we tend to think about it in terms of the Holy Spirit transforming our actions, that we slowly do the right thing more often as we become like Jesus. That is true. But embrace the good news this morning that the Holy Spirit is not just transforming your actions. The Holy Spirit is transforming the way you feel. Jesus has made us free people, and he is making us whole people. Whole people who don't act one way but think another. Whole people who don't choose one thing but desire another. Whole people who don't have to want to want anymore. Because there will be a day when you won't have to want to want anymore. And that's when the free people will be the whole people. And until that day, we give ourselves the same exhortation that Paul gave at the end of this passage. It is, you are free. And until you are completely whole, stand firm in your freedom. And don't let yourselves be yoked again by the yoke of slavery.